all glories to Sri Guru and Yoga, all glories to Sri Those who are devotees of Lord Vishnu, Krishna, or Suras, or Devas, whereas those who are opposed to the devotees are called Asuras. Devotees are expert in all their transactions. Therefore, they are called Kovida, which means expert. Asuras, however, although superficially showing expertise in passionate activities, are actually all fools. They are neither sober nor expert. 
whatever they do is imperfect. What does that mean? That's why the Gita. They're baffled in their hopes for what are the three things Krishna lists that the demons are baffled in their hopes for? Liberation and and karma and knowledge. Karma again and emotion. According to this description, the assurance is given in Bhagavad Gita 9.12, whatever they do will ultimately be baffled. It was such persons who advised Kamsa because they were his chief friends and ministers. After hearing their master statement, the envious Asuras, who were enemies of the demigods and were not very expert in their dealings, advised as follows. So Kovika, or it's also called Daksha, is one of the 26 qualities of a devotee, being very expert. Being very expert. So what is expertise? Here are the demons that weren't very expert. I think They didn't have much expertise. Although Prabhupada says they can superficially show expertise in passionate dealings. And indeed, we see that, isn't it? see that materialistic people you see that materialistic people may superficially have expertise and they may even have more expertise in something than a, than a devotee right? I'm sure there's many materialistic people who are expert in many things that each of us are not expert in isn't that a fact? Right? someone who speaks you know, 30 languages and maybe you only speak one or two and someone who can fix a car and you can barely drive it and you know so there may be some something like that. Uh, so what does this mean to be expert? I think this is a, a deep question. Prabhupada also refers to the verse that says that the non-devotees have no good qualities here in this purport. And I think this is it's a little bit of a problem for us. Mm-hmm. How is it? What does it mean to be expert? What does it mean to have good qualities? So let's look at what expertise means. What does it mean if we say that somebody has expertise? Any ideas? Any thoughts? Being a thought leader. Hmm? Being a thought leader. Being a what leader? A thought. A thought leader. Thoughtful, you mean? Thought. An innovation. Oh, okay. An innovative leader. Any other idea? What does it mean to have expertise? Yes. Okay, to be doing something to the best of your abilities, but I mean, if I played a sitar to the best of my abilities, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't, I'll tell you right now, I wouldn't show any expertise whatsoever. Do you have an understanding of what subject matter is that you're talking about? Okay, so to understand the subject matter that you're talking about. I think you're close to something, but it's not quite there. Any other idea what do we mean by being expert? Yeah. Ability above average in something. Yes? Unique, uniquely. Of course, unique, unique means one. So that would imply there would be only one expert in something. But again, special above the average to be uniquely doing something very good. Okay, yeah? Utilizing everything for Utilizing, well, now you've got a devotee explanation of what is expertise. You're jumping to my next area. So to be really expert means to do everything for Krishna's pleasure. Yes? The more godliness, the more expert. You're also jumping there, Kathy. The more godliness, the more expert. Can we get kind of just a neutral definition of expertise? Let's put aside the sirs and us sirs. Yes? Be very good at controlling Okay, be very good at controlling whatever it is you're doing. Okay? So to control the car, right? If that's if your expertise is in the car, to be controlling where the flowers all are in the vase or vase, however you guys say, on the side of the pond. You know, to make sure they stay in the right place and they have the right, so be very good at controlling it. Any other thoughts on what does it mean to be? We, we ought to know this. It's one, supposed to be one of the qualities of a devotee, yeah? Just to be very good at anything you do. Be very good at anything you do. Well, then, that begs the question of what is good. We ended up with another word one has to define. 
have some ability. You know, when Prabhupada gave a series of lectures on the Brahmacharya Ashram in Mumbai in 1976 on the verses from the 7th canto about Brahmacharya which I studied in depth because that was also about Gurukula. Prabhupada was equating the adult Brahmacharya Ashram in the temple to a Gurukula. And he spoke in one of those lectures about Daksha, or the expert. And he said that all of the Brahmacharis should know something of everything and everything of something. Also in the second canto of the Bhagavatam, Prabhupada says that the Gurukula is for giving specific training in a livelihood. Obviously that's for the majority are going to go on to make a livelihood in the Grahastha Ashram. But even those who are going to go on to prepare for the Sanyas Ashram and then skip the Grahastha Ashram, to know something of everything and everything of something. So obviously you can't know everything of something, only Krishna can know everything of something. But that would be an expert. You know your craft, whatever it is, you know your craft, you understand it, you can execute it better than someone else. You get a good result. You can control it. And I would say also that other living entities are happy. That would have to be part of the expertise. You know, if I'm very expert at controlling what services get done in the temple as far as scheduling and etc., but everybody hates me, then I wouldn't be much of an expert, correct? Yes? Have you ever lived in a temple like that? I have so, you know, that's not really expertise. So expertise is you're making every, everybody is, is satisfied. I, um, I don't know if, if all of you know Akura Prabhu, who lived in London for a long time. He was associated with the Soho Temple. So he would share with me often books about leadership and management, which is, is one of my fields. And uh, one of the books he shared with me is called Good to Great. It's one of the classics in the management field. And they were just looking at expertise and making money only. That was their criteria for choosing businesses that had gone from being a good business to a great business and sustained their greatness. And they had looked at different qualities of the leaders in these companies, what created their expertise. And they found out that some of what created their expertise was, interestingly enough, humility. The way the authors put it is when there was something that went right, they looked out the window, something that went bad, they looked in the mirror. In other words, when things went right, they gave the credit to everybody else. When things went wrong, they took all the blame for themselves. They were more interested in the mission than in themselves. This is something we see in Shri Prabhupada, that uh, we're celebrating ISKCON's 50th anniversary due in no small part to Shri Prabhupada in 1970 when he didn't have any mature leaders on any level of maturity, any measure of leveling of any measure, any level of measuring maturity, uh, that he created a GBC and got himself out of the center of management, you know, which had some dire consequences for ISKCON, by the way, which persist even until 2016, that we had people, you know, only a year in the Hare Krishna movement with no management experience who were only 23 years old, you know, running an international society. So we still have some repercussions from that down to the present day. But Prabhupada got he, he, he didn't want it to be a personality cult, in other words. So people who are expert there, it's not about them. The people who make their work about them, their expertise is all about them. As soon as they get out of the picture, everything falls apart. So the real expert is somebody who makes, who's concerned with the mission, who's concerned with the product that they're making. They're, they're more concerned with what they're doing and how they're interacting with others than just getting something for themselves. Now, though there's many studies like that one of what constitute expertise, there's not very many studies that get into what's the topic of this verse, which a couple of you already touched on because you're all suras and not asuras. And that is the spiritual factor, or we can even say the modal factor. There's a modal factor and there's a spiritual factor, which if not taken into account doesn't get you real expertise. So you can do all of your studies, you know, your quantitative, your qualitative, your longitudinal studies of what makes an expert in business or what makes an ex expert in music or what makes an expert in art or, you know, um, I've taught sociology and religion at Bhaktivedanta to college and we look there at people who study religions. What makes an expert religion? You know, they study this kind. Do you remember that? Student, you were my student there too. Surprised you had anything to do with me at all. 
So there are sociologists who study, you know, what makes an expert religion? How does a religion persist? And they define expertise in religion in terms of externals. Does the religion last for at least 100 years and does it have a certain number of followers? Which, by the way, only about one out of every 100 religions do. Most religions don't last very long or amass a large number of followers. So they look at that kind of expertise and then they analyze the religious organization and they say, okay, well, religious organizations that do this tend to persist and those that don't do this. But there's something else that they're not looking at. And that's what Shiva Prabhupada's talking about in this verse. So we're going to examine today expertise without Krishna and expertise with Krishna. Is that all right? And because it's one of the 26 qualities of devotees and because it's one of the principles that Shiva Prabhupada said should be taught in the Brahmacharya Ashram, I would assume also in the Brahmacharini Ashram, and because this is one of the main centers of training devotees anywhere in the world, I think it might be something relevant for us. So without Krishna, there's the appearance that everything is working well. Everything looks good on the surface, at least for a time. But the results, Prahlad Maharaj says, are what? What does Prahlad Maharaj say? He said, when you try to find happiness here, the results you get are? Definitely temporary. Anista asukam. Krishna says, Anitam asukam. Dukkalayam shasvatam. Everything's temporary. Even the expert results we get externally as devotees are also, by the way, temporary. At least in the external features. But Prabhupada also says that whenever you try to do something good in the world, you inevitably get results that are the what? Opposite of what you desire. You get the opposite of what you desire. Let this, we can just look at a very few examples. So one of my favorite is illegitimate children. So in 1960, in the United States, 4% of children were born out of marriage. Now it is 40%. And what happened between 1960 and today? What happened was widespread contraceptives and birth control. And the people who propounded that there should be widespread contraceptives and birth control did it with the purpose of what? What was their purpose? Hmm? Reducing, well not birth specifically, reducing illegitimate births, reducing unwanted children. It wasn't propounded as we're trying to reduce births in general. It was propounded that we want every child to be born into a loving family and be wanted. And therefore, we should have birth control and abortion to prevent unwanted, unloved children. They weren't just saying we want to prevent children in general. And what was the result? Exactly the opposite. The number of children who were born unwanted, unloved, has increased by ten times. The amount of child abuse has greatly increased. Now, people might say, well, people are just reporting it more. That might be true also. But certainly, what's being reported has just increased phenomenally. The instability in society has increased. They, they were thinking this was a way we were going to have a more stable society. What it led to was people delaying marriage and people not having kids. And sociologically, as soon as you get to 17% of the population being born out of marriage, your society starts falling apart. So a lot of the instability and the crime and frankly the terrorism and all these things we're seeing in society are caused by that very thing which they thought would create stability in society. Another good example, this is something I learned in a graduate policy class, was there was a law passed in America to help people with disabilities. Good idea, right? You want to help people with disabilities? Sounds like a good idea. So they passed a law that a deaf person seeing a doctor, had to be provided with an interpreter free of charge. That's not like a good idea. Deaf people would get better medical care, right? Unfortunately, the government didn't provide the funds to the doctors to pay the interpreter. And an interpreter for deaf people is very expensive. It's also very tiring. You know, when I've been in places where there were sign language interpreters, they change every half an hour so they don't get tired. The doctors simply couldn't afford to hire the interpreters. Now, it was very easy to tell whether or not a patient is deaf. Right? You can tell when they try to make an appointment over the phone, can't you? 
So it was very easy for them to weed out deaf patients. And what happened was the deaf patients couldn't get medical care at all. So it went from trying to facilitate them getting medical care to they weren't able to get medical care. Or we have, you know, our modern technology, the little box that I'm sure most of you have, you know, that allows you to communicate with anybody all over the world instantly to exchange files. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. I can just take out this little teeny tiny box and I can send you a file from the cloud. It's not even on my little box. And I can send a file to you in another part of the world in two seconds. I mean, it, it's pretty amazing. You know, having these little boxes that communicate all over the world, it, it, it allows you, I mean, what I've been able to do with it is publish books. I mean, we published 83 books without an office. We had, we had no office. And it engaged 200 devotees, many of them here in London, over three years with editors and illustrators, without having an office, without having to pay people a full-time salary, without having to provide all the machines and all that. So, so many wonderful things, but what does it also produce? It's produced a, a situation where people have no border between their work and their life. You know, it used to be that you had work at the end of the day and you went home to your family and then you could, you know, hear Shastra in the evening and now it's just your work follows you everywhere. Right? It follows you out to the, the beach on your vacation. And people's stress level is increasing so much that, you know, the number of people on psychotropic medicines is just in the roof. Or something like psychotropic medicine. Okay, we're going to have all these chemicals to give people mental peace and, and balance and, and so forth. But the water treatment plants can't handle it. So these chemicals are going in the water system. And it's making very mellow fish. And they're just like, okay, big fish, you can come eat me. It's, it's really a problem. It's also feminizing the fish. It's changing the, the gender all the hormones that are being put into the water system. So we can analyze one after another, after another, after another. Antibiotics, you know, when I was a little kid, antibiotics were going to... Antibiotics and vaccines, when I was a child, were going to cure all disease on the planet. Any of you who are around my age, you may remember. We were going to wipe out disease. You know, and antibiotics have created superbugs that now there's no cure for They've created worse diseases than they have cured. Plus, they mess up your whole digestive system and so many things. So this is expertise done without vision, without knowledge. And then also, without Krishna, we find people are damaged. You know, a lot of the machines we use, you may know, are at the cost of people that there are people working without proper medical care. They get injured on the job. Oh, well, too bad. You're fired. You know, they're breathing in so many toxic fumes. They're working with so many toxic chemicals. A lot of the food we eat, the machines we use, the fabrics we use, is at the cost of, of people's lives and, 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 you know, people's health and, and happiness. It's making people unhappy. What to speak of what's being done to the animals unspeakable, we won't mention it in the temple. Absolutely unspeakable. Horrors out of, out of some, you know, Marquis de Sade torture chambers being done to the animals, and even what's being done to the plants, you know, genetically modifying them and pouring chemicals over their roots and, and what's being done to the earth. And so there's so many, in order to produce all this expertise, which causes an opposite result, anyway, Humans and animals and plants and the planet itself is being harmed. So great harm being done to create an expertise in something that simply produces an opposite result. Would we call that expertise? Is such a person very expert? You know, if you go into a company, you're going to take over as the expert manager and all of the innovations that you do end up producing the opposite result and you fry out all your employees and you fry out all your customers and you make it so you can't get the product anymore, would we put that as, oh, that's a great company? And if you don't have God consciousness, that's what happens. So why? 
why do you need to have God consciousness? Because in, in the modern, and, and we'll make it general, we'll say God consciousness will be very non-sectarian. It's all useless in this life and the next. Why? Why is that? And I think we have to ask why, because in modern society, which is a very secular society, I don't know what secular means, the standard sociological definition of secular. It means you don't explain things in terms of God. You don't see things ashraya. There's no faith in God mixed up. Well, this thing happened just by chance. And this, this, in my life, I don't explain my life in terms of God. I don't explain the world in terms of God. So why is that? Well, here we see envious, that materialistic people are more or less envious. What does it mean to be envious? It means I want more than you. You know, if you're a little bit envious, it means, okay, you can be happy as long as it's not more than my happiness. If you're, you know, moderately envious. You can have a nice car as long as my car is better. You can have a beautiful wife as long as my wife is more beautiful. You can know the Shastra as long as I know more. You know. You can have the nice prasadam as long as I get more. Or at least as much. So if you're even less envious, at least I have to have as much. And if you're really envious, you don't want anybody to have anything. Or you want to make sure everybody has far less than you. And it's interesting that Narayamuni tells Juva Maharaj that if you conquer this envy, you don't have any material miseries. If any of us are interested in getting free of the material miseries. And so Narayamuni tells Juva Maharaj, when you see someone greater than you, if you're joyful, someone equal, you make friendships, someone lower, you pick them up, you won't have any material misery. But those who are envious, when they see someone higher, they want to pull them down. I got this now to say, oh, I can't believe he's a high court judge. I knew him when he was a boy. No way. No, I saw him sitting on the bench. He's there. Oh, well, he must not be getting paid. You know? So I saw this devotee. He's really blissful. Nah, he couldn't be blissful. He's just faking it. He's coming every day, you know, he's really fixed in his side and night. Yeah, yeah, but his heart must be dirty. You know, so somehow to pull them down. And practically, for practically every leader in our Krishna consciousness movement, somebody has taken the time and trouble to make a website just to criticize them. Did you know? For almost anyone who has a leadership position in the Hare Krishna movement, there's somebody who's gone to all the trouble and expense to make a whole website. And for some of them, you know, they are so qualified, they get several websites criticized. <laughs> Just like, so tear them down, tear them down, tear them down. And when you're envious, when someone's equal to you, you brag. You try to push yourself above. Well, but I did this, I said. And if you're really expert at your enviousness, you'll brag subtly. You know, if you're not so expert, well, I, but if it's, you know, well, you know the time when I met the queen, yeah, I was wrong. <laughs> you know, you kind of bring it in there somehow. And if, if you're really envious when people are lower than you, you want to keep them down. You don't want to, you don't want to give them anything. You know, you know, oh, they're the youth, I'll let them in there. They're the women. They're not proud of disciples. They're not saying yes. Keep them down. Don't let them have uh, some facility that I have. And non-envious is when you see someone who's greater than you, you're happy. Wow, they have something greater than me. They're more, wow, they're more advanced. They've only been in Krishna consciousness for a year and I've been chanting for my whole life and they're more advanced. How wonderful that is. And you meet somebody who's equal and you just try to be friends with them. And you meet someone's lower and you pull them up. Hey, come and get all the facility that I have. Like Prabhupada told Jamuna, he said, if you don't teach what you know, then you'll become envious. So if someone's envious, how can they possibly be expert? Because their basic motivation is harming others. And part of expertise is everybody's happy. Everybody's satisfied. It benefits everyone. So an envious person, it's, it's not possible. 
The more envy you have, the less you can be expert in what you're doing. It may look good for a while. It may look good for a while. But people become sorry, and people become upset. And I, I'm sorry to say this, but we have this, it's, this problem also in our Hare Krishna movement. It's not like a Vinastrupa who likes to say, you know, it's not like everybody in the Hare Krishna movement is a perfectly pure devotee, and everybody outside the Hare Krishna movement is, you know, somebody with horns and fangs and a tail. It's not. I'm sorry if you thought that way. But it, it's not like that. And, and we also have sometimes, you know, devotees who are really expert in something, but they're stepping on everybody. And, and people walk away and they say, wow, you know, I, I, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. I have an email sitting in my inbox right now. And I'm not quite sure how to answer. I got fried by this thing in the institution and that thing in the institution. So we don't want to be expert like that. We don't, we don't want that kind of expertise. Now, there's another way in which those who are not with Krishna cannot be truly expert and not have any good qualities, and, and I speak about this a lot, so I wanted to mention this just as, as one note among many. And that is that those who are not with Krishna are always in a state of fear. Now, to some extent, fear is just part of having a material body, as explained in Bhagavad Gita 14.22-25, to where Krishna says, those who do not hate illumination, attachment, and illusion when they appear, no longer for them when they disappear. And Prabhupada talks there in the purport, he said that the modes of nature are going to act as long as we have a material body. But the point is to be neutral, to be separate from them. So just like the body is going to feel hungry, you know, the mind is going to feel fear. But it's a question of like rivers entering into the ocean, which is always being full, but it never overflows its banks. But for the materialistic people, identifying with the material body and mind, they are completely consumed with fear because a material body and a material mind are really scary. How fragile is our body? Pretty fragile, right? A little slip, you know, and you end up in a wheelchair. Isn't it a fact? A fever, a slip on the stairs, car out of control. I was recently visiting my sister-in-law, brother-in-law, and she had been uh, visiting a friend of hers some years ago, got up in the middle of the night to use a toilet, opened the wrong door, fell down the cellar stairs, and she's never fully regained her memory or fully regained the, the use of her hand. I remember her husband, my brother-in-law, said to me, said, you know, just one second can change everything. So that's pretty fearful. If you're trying to depend on your body, for your happiness and your functionality and your identity, and you've got this thing that's like a piece of glass. And then our mind, our minds are pretty fragile also, aren't they? Anybody have a super dependable mind? So, you know, if, you're, if we're depending on our mind, okay, that's how I'm going to access my knowledge and my creativity and my connections, and, you know, if that's our shelter, then we're also going to be full of fear. If our shelter is in things, our car, our home, our clothes, you know, our little computer boxes, then we're also going to be full of fear because, you know what, they break, they get lost, they get stolen. If our shelter is in other people or animals, you know, the cows, the whatever, my pet dog, my pet cow, or my family, my mother, my father, my husband, my wife, or even, you know, my brahmachari buddies, That's also shaky, isn't it? When you need people, they may not be there. So if we're depending on other people or animals, other living entities, we're also going to be full of fear. Today they may like us, tomorrow they may not like us. So people who are in these modes of passion and ignorance, even frankly goodness, they're full of fear. Because all of their shelters are, what does the Bhagavatam say? Fallible, fallible soldiers. I had a cousin who liked to play with plastic soldiers. Whenever I visited my auntie and uncle's house, I had to play with plastic soldiers with him because he wouldn't play with anything else. So if those are our soldiers, you know, if, if those are our protectors, a bunch of little plastic guys, they were, I remember they were all green colored, even the faces, green plastic soldiers. Our body, our mind, our things, and the other jivas in our life. They're all fallible soldiers. 
And if that's what our identity is, if our upadis, our identities, our abhima, is all wrapped up in our body and our mind and things and other people, and they're what's going to give us happiness, and they're what's going to give us a sense of control, and they're what's going to give us peace, and <coughs> meaning, and love, and excitement, and all the needs that we have, freedom, then we're going to be constantly in a state of fear because everything we're depending on is shaky. Not only shaky, but not even very satisfying. When it isn't shaking, it's not very satisfying. Isn't it? You know, just constant, constant disappointment. So if one is full of fear about one's basic self-preservation, if one's identity is wrapped up in a body and mind and things and other conditioned living entities, if that's what's wrapping up your sense of self and your sense of being and your sense of identity in all of your shelters, then you're always going to be worried about self-preservation. Constantly. It may not be right at the forefront of your mind, but it will be in the background. Like when we recently at the Radigovinda Temple in New York and there's the underground trains that go under the building. You know, so every few minutes. <laughs> if you're not used to it, you think it's an earthquake. <laughs> but if you live there, it just becomes background. Oh yeah, building shakes. Like the first night we slept in the ladies' ashram, you know, it was really hard. People upstairs, people upstairs, the furniture was creaking, and then, you know, you don't get to sleep at that, we didn't get to sleep that night, so the next day I tried to take a nap, and then they're, they're sweeping the hallway, and as I sweep the hallway, they bang the broom into the wall. You know, and then there's the washing machines, beep, beep, you know, out in the hallway. At first you can't sleep, and then after a day you get used to it, and then it does, you know, you don't hear it anymore. You understand? It's still there, but you don't hear it. So the materialistic people lose their awareness of this constant state of fear. It's not in their conscious awareness, but it's there all the time. And this desire for self-preservation. So when you have a desire for self-preservation as your primary drive, then you will only show good qualities and expertise when it suits your self-preservation. Now we can all think about this, right? We're all honest people, right? Right? I don't have to worry about my jumper over there on the windowsill. <laughs> but would anyone here say, well, I'm perfectly honest? You know, I think we're all serious sadikas here, yes? I think so. But would anyone say, I'm perfectly serious sadika? Could anyone say that? You know, why is it that we have our ideals of character and behavior and we fall short of our ideals? If you think about it, think about the last time you were less than honest then we'll see that there was some kind of fear. If I'm perfectly honest here, I might lose something I already have, or I might not gain something that I want. And when that fear of self-preservation kicks in, then our good qualities, our expertise, go completely out the window, and all we become concerned about is ourselves. So if you're more of ignorance, your fear is very deep and pervasive. It doesn't take much. You could think that the line is very small. You know, the cup's like very small, just a little bit of fear sets it off and their good qualities are gone. You're in the mode of passion, probably talks about here about the mode of passion. Which is interesting, because generally the mode of passion is for the great kings. But even the demons can be in the mode of passion. So when you're in the mode of passion, it's a little higher. You're going you're to stick to your principles through more threats. But again, some threat to your self-preservation is finished. And the mode of goodness is much higher. But even in the mode of goodness, the essential feature of the mode of goodness is still me. In the mode of ignorance, it's I want to satisfy me as uh, identified by the mind and body as quickly as possible. And if I can do it in a nice way, okay. But if a nice way is not the most immediate availability, then I'll do it in a not nice way. Because all I care about is immediate gratification. Fast food, who cares what violence was involved, how sick it's going to make me. I get something to eat quickly. Mode of passion, you're willing to have great determination to achieve your goal. But it's still all about satisfying the body and mind, and it's about getting acclaim and honor for society. In the mode of goodness, it's about inner harmony and balance. We were speaking last night about forgiveness. And if you say, you know, if you're forgiving, you'll feel peaceful, you'll feel joyful, you'll feel balanced, you'll get a sense of closure in your life. And I can see that most of the people in the room who are just starting their Christian consciousness are like, yeah, I want to 
But that's not fun. It's still about me. My peace, my harmony, my balance, my closure, my equanimity. And if your peace, your balance, your closure, your equanimity is threatened, then again, that helps. We see this with some of the great yogis, right? That Vishwamitra Muni, you know, he got so angry at Ramba because he'd already had it with Medica. He'd already been disturbed from his practices with Medica that when Ramba came, he was angry. How dare you come here and disturb my peace and equanimity? Because Haridas Thakur wasn't angry with the prostitute. He said, sit down and listen while I chant Hare Krishna. He, he didn't jump into bad qualities, you understand? Because he didn't feel threatened. So somebody who's, who has fear of self-preservation, which comes from having shaky shelters, has a limit to good qualities. And therefore, even though such persons may display many good qualities, and the higher you are in the modes, the more good qualities you'll display under the more circumstances. But the ultimate quality of such a person is self-preservation on a false ground of self. Therefore, one can say there's not really any good qualities at all. Because the only quality is ultimately selfishness. Although such persons, especially if they're highly advanced in Saifugun, may display more good qualities than a beginning devotee externally. All right, now how do we become expert with Krishna? What is expertise with Krishna? Expertise with Krishna is fully satisfying to oneself, yet yet must supersede Fully satisfies itself and others, even if externally it's not perfect. When Vidura or Vidura's wife offered Krishna the banana peels instead of the bananas, that's not very expert from an external position. But Krishna was happy, and actually Vidura and his wife were also very happy. They were a little embarrassed at first. But they also felt very happy and very satisfied. And the results are what you actually desire. You get the actual results. I mean, such is true even to a large extent when you go to the mode of goodness, because in the mode of goodness, you can see what is to be done, what is not to be done, what is liberating and what is binding, what is good, what is bad. And what passion you can't. And you think, oh, antibiotics, that's going to be good. You know, birth control, that's going to be good. But in the mode of goodness, you, you can see further. You have clearer vision because you're not as envious. <laughs> and you have a mood more of helping others. And in bhakti, it's completely clear. You're out in the sunshine as the sun lights up everything in the daytime. But ignorance is removed. And you can really see what's best for yourself and what's best for others. You don't even have to ask somebody. You see it yourself. Dharma. What is dharma? What is right? becomes immediately obvious. And so everything you do benefits you now and forever and benefits everyone else you deal with now and forever. And that's true even if someone has just a brief encounter with such a person. Right? Sadhusanga, sadhusanga, sarva shastra, lavamajra, sadhusanga, sarva siddhi, why siddhi is also expertise, perfection. Just an eleventh of a second association with a person who's in that consciousness can bring you all benefit. Can give you prema bhakti. Because everything they do is benefiting everyone. They don't have a worry. Such persons have no worry about self preservation. Bhaktivedanta Swami likes to tell the story when he was new to Krishna consciousness in the former Soviet Union. And the KGB called him into their office. Because he was already a graduate student. Big person. Very qualified person. And they said, you know, uh, we need you to stop this chanting of Hare Krishna. Work for us. So he was scared. And he was talking to the devotees. He said he was talking to this one lady devotee. He said she was very short and very thin. Tiny. You know, physically very tiny. And a woman. And she looked at him and she said... 
You have that body. They can't do anything to you at all. And he was a new bhakta, and he thought, wow, if this tiny little woman can be fearless, what's my problem? You know, and then he went back to meet with the KGB, and as he was meeting with them a second time, he started meditating on the mantra. The mantra just came to him, not from his own mind. Just came to him and surrounded him. And he said, I don't have to have any fear. So Abhaya Chodhanadami, the devotee who has fearlessness, not because they're in the mode of goodness and they have this inner equanimity, but because they have the right shelter. Because they have the right shelter. They have a shelter, what does it Krishna say? Near yoga kshema atbhavan. Give up all desires for gain and safety and be established in the self. They have a shelter in their own self. Their real self. As Jivara Swarapaya Krishna and Nichidasha. I am the servant of Krishna. Like the little child, Prabhupada says, holding the hand of the father. That's my real identity. So I have nothing to fear. And in that real identity, with nothing to fear, one can fully satisfy everyone without thinking, well, if I give you everything, what will be left for me? I was at a big convention the devotees held in Hungary about the environment, and they had also some non-devotee speakers, and one of them was speaking and saying, you know, there's not enough resources to go around, and we all want to live at the level of the Americans. And the only way we can do that is to have as few children as possible. So we reduce the number of kids, and therefore we'll all be able to live like the rich Americans we see on TV. You know, so the devotees don't think like that. They're all pranam, ala pranam, yam pranam, pranam, yudachate, pranasya, pranam, andaya, pranam, eva, vasishate. Infinity minus infinity is infinity. So if I'm in touch with the infinite, I can have everything and overflowing, as David said, my cup runneth over. So I can do things that give infinite benefit to everyone and I still get infinite benefit. And what the devotees do, whether external or internal, whether it's talking about Krishna, whether it's building a beautiful temple, whether it's distributing prasadam, whether it's distributing books, is done for that ultimate result, for that ultimate benefit. And even if on the external platform, like it says that these literatures, even if imperfectly composed, even if there's something wrong with the grammar or something wrong with the spelling, obviously we should try to fix the grammar and the spelling. But even if there's something wrong with those, the real expertise of the devotee is doing something that has not just the desired result, but infinitely so. So in that way, the devotee is truly expert. And therefore, Krishna wants devotees to be in charge of everything. Like he wanted Maharaj Yudhisthira, I'm just reading now in the Bhagavatam, about the Rajasriya sacrifice. This is when he was reading, just got to the killing of Shishupal. So Krishna taking that as this. And Krishna wants Maharaj Yudhisthira to be the ruler. Krishna wants devotees who are expert in business, in farming, in cow protection, in dance, in art, in music, in plumbing, electricity in recycling and garbage collection, and of course in Shastra and in scholarliness and in teaching and in guiding and in healing and everything that you can think of, every occupation that one can think of. In all of the Varnas, Krishna wants expert students and expert family persons and expert retired persons and expert renounced persons. And he wants all of the, at least the leaders at least he wants the leaders to be free from envy. He wants the leaders to have a shelter at his lotus feet, which gives one a vayachananadavindari, which gives one fearlessness and freedom from envy. If I'm in touch with the infinite and I have everything and I never die and I can never get hurt, why should I envy anybody? Let everybody have everything and I can still have everything too. Yes, when Krishna's with the, in the Rasalila, each gopi has Krishna all to herself. She doesn't have to take Krishna away from the other gopis to have Krishna altars. You follow? Everybody can have Krishna. Each coward boy, they think, oh, Krishna's facing me. Krishna's just looking at me. So when we connect like that, uh, then we become really expert. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't study recipes if we're in the kitchen. It doesn't mean that. We used to think that in the beginning of the Hare Krishna movement. You know, I think there's still some remnant of that some places. 
that, you know, the main criteria is you chant 16 rounds and you show up for Mangalarti every day and you only eat prasadam. I mean, when, when my husband and I first opened a Gurukula in Detroit, I had to secretly go take professional training classes. If the devotees knew that I was going and learning anything, then they would have said, oh, now you're not fit. Isn't that odd? You're not fit to be a teacher if you're learning professionally how to be a teacher. Get your head around that one. So, you know, we used to think that getting, learning anything from the people who were expert at it materially would be a disqualification. So, of course, we should do that, too. You know, if you're a cook, you should learn how to cook. If you're repairing the cars, you should learn how to repair the cars. If you're cleaning, you should learn how to clean. Okay? That's also an art. Dress the deities, you should learn how to dress the deities, just like you have your academy, right? You, know, you don't just say to people, if you're sincere, you know, that's all. Just be sincere. Just chant Hare Krishna, close your eyes, and with all your sincerity, just put on the turban. Do you tell them that? No, you have, I've been there, you know, to the library academy. And they're practicing, and somebody critiques. I wish we would do this for preaching. Ever since I joined the Hare Krishna movement, we teach preachers how to preach. Teach people how to be expert in speaking and presenting. That's the next thing we need to do. Teach the Brahmanas public speaking and debate and logic. So that's real expertise. Real expertise is Krishna consciousness. And of course, if we're Krishna conscious, we should also want to gain the externals, to please Krishna. Uh, not because I think that way I'll be able to control the material energy or something like that, or I'll get praise and adoration, and I'll be able to have more expert, fallible soldiers. But I, I want to make a nice flower arrangement so Krishna will smile, and I want to make a nice food preparation so Krishna will smile, and I want to try to lead and manage the devotees nicely so Krishna will smile. Prabhupada said the residents of Vrindavan, they only want Krishna to smile. So how do we do this? How do we go to actual expertise? Sometimes devotees think we, you know, we want to reject material expertise so we'll just become, you know, clumsy oafs. But how do we do this? So we have to have faith in the Supreme. We have to have Krishna as our shelter. Krishna is my only shelter. Mam ekam sharanam vrija. Just Krishna. Just Krishna. Not the body, not the mind, not other living entities, not my things. Only, 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 only Krishna. No, I can take shelter of other jivas who help me take shelter of Krishna, like we study in Manushiksha. Kintu Prabhuriya Kriya Evitasya. Because they are dear to Krishna, they help me get Krishna's shelter. But I don't take shelter of them independently. Like we don't take shelter of even the demigods, and even Lord Brahma, who's one of our gurus, he's the leader of our Sampradaya, but we don't take shelter of him independently. So just to take shelter of Krishna. Near yogic shema atmavan, not to worry about gain and safety, be established in the self. Yogic shema baham yamam, you will take him. You will meet my needs. You have always been meeting my needs. You are meeting my needs in the past, the present, and the future. And I never die, and I never get hurt, and I never get insulted, and I never get anything. All our fears about being helpless, humiliated, in pain, Disabled, these are our main fears, yes? To be helpless, to be humiliated, to be in pain, to be disabled. It can't be any of those. It's all. All those things can happen to the body, and they probably will at some point, but they can't happen to me. And if I have Krishna's shelter, then I have no fear. And to take that shelter at every moment, every moment, every moment, not like a materialistic fruit of worker who's thinking, well, I'm going to do my sadhana, and, I'm going to, and later I'm going to get Krishna's shelter. That's the, the offense of thinking that our sadhana is some kind of ritualistic behavior that will bring us to heaven eventually. But right now, think of Krishna while we're acting. At every moment, Krishna is my shelter. At every moment, is my shelter. And at every moment, let me try to please him. At every moment, let me try to please him. And then naturally will become free from fear. Naturally, it will become non-envious as, as a natural byproduct. And then whatever we learn to do in Krishna's service will be real expertise. And if we can fill the world, at least in leadership positions, 
with people this mentality, then the world will change and become like such a Then it will be an actual golden age, and then all the people in the world will be happy. Not like these foolish demons again. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions, corrections, chastisements. Yes, here we go with the difficult question. Not this time? Yeah, you won't be doing your swadharma. <laughs> Thank you very much for a very erudite lecture, which I enjoyed very much. Uh, actually, what you have done is to open up a whole new can of worms. You know. I, to I told you we were going to do this. Yes, so I have okay. many questions and comments. Let's start with one. Time is short. I'll yes. focus on two. Oh, okay, two. Right. I mean, you, you, you developed the thing of how bad the situation is in most countries, especially in America and so on. Well, that I, means yeah. that I, means you don't all mind that I pick on America, right? As long as I didn't pick on the UK, it's okay. Did you speak to anyone from your company called Monsanto? Have I spoke to anybody from Monsanto? That's right. No, I don't have any friends in Monsanto. <laughs> <laughs> they do, but they haven't invited me in. Your work is cut out. This book tries to be, wants to be uh, responsible and relevant to society. Yes. Then you should speak to people like Monsanto. And so well, tell you what, you know what, if you can arrange it, I'll do it. I don't have that kind of and neither do I. So we, you can also talk to Radhika Kulananda and ask them to. You can do quite a lot of things. For example, the main cheerleader of Monsanto was, guess who? I don't know. Ex-president Kapoor. I don't have any connection with these people. That, that, what I would suggest you do, instead of bringing up that to me here in this place now, what I would suggest you do is you can work with people who have those connections and see if you get people, doesn't happen to me, and, and see if you can get devotees into those places. Because you're in America, America has all the cloud. Yes, Prabhu. It's not that every single American yeah. citizen has all the cloud. Then what was your second question? Please, please, please try to arrange that. That's something to arrange. You can make that one of your initials. Not just President Dumbo, but also the... Ask, ask Radhika Kona to turn it out. Okay. Can we go to question two? Yes. yes. Question two, we should not be uh, sort of afraid of changes which are what it works. Because ultimately, what right have we got to say that we want to live forever? We can't. We should yeah. not be afraid of changes that are for the worse. No, no. Because, you see, in the material world, can you show me anything that lasts forever? It starts at the beginning. There's a beginning, a middle, and then mm. even stars and galaxies. They Absolutely. Is yes. That because we don't have this, we should really look for answers in thermodynamics. For example, it says in the second law of thermodynamics that something called entropy yes. disorder which is increasing all the time. There is no way in which you can stop it or retard it. But you know what? Even though and even though everything here on the external level follows the law of the cycle of thermodynamics and entropy, and not only on this planet, Krishna says, you know, and all the planets, there is something. There is something that is not subject to the law of entropy. And not only does it not degrade but it increases dynamically forever. And when we're in touch with that thing, then even if externally our body falls apart, our mind falls apart, our home falls apart, our whole planet falls apart, the whole universe falls apart, that thing goes on increasing eternally. And when you're in touch with that thing, which goes on increasing eternally, and is never subjected to the law of entropy, then even the external things you do that do fall apart are surcharged with that spiritual energy and give you and everyone who contacts them a touch with that which increases forever through the crumbling things. Just like this temple is definitely not going to exist in this form a thousand years from now. It just isn't. It can't. Nothing really is a Well, if it's made of stone, it can exist for a thousand years. If it's made of stone, it can exist for several tens of thousands of years. This building is not. It can't. However, what happens in this building, which will crumble? Absolutely, definitely, without any doubt whatsoever. But there's something happening here 
that will not crumble. And not only will it not crumble, it will go on increasing and increasing and increasing in quantity and in quality forever, eternally. And that is what we need to do. Thank you. But no, we shouldn't be afraid of the external problem. We shouldn't be afraid of old age and death and destruction externally. Anybody else have anything? Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. And thank you very much.